Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Welcome to episode 63. Today we're pleased to welcome to the show Alicia Malone, an authority on classic, independent, and foreign films, and a passionate supporter of women in film. She's given two TEDx talks on the subject, and her first two books, Backwards in Heels and The Female Gaze, explore the accomplishments and obstacles women have faced throughout cinema's history. Her latest book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies, was released in March, and connects film analysis with her own journey of self-discovery, from growing up as a nerdy film lover in Australia to finding her voice as a woman on television. Malone began her television career two decades ago in her native Australia, working behind the scenes as a writer, producer, and editor for movie-centric television shows. Her expertise in film saw her transition to host, interviewer, and film critic for television, radio, print, and online. In 2011, Malone moved to Los Angeles and since then has appeared as a film expert on a variety of television channels and programs, including CNN's The Movies documentary series, MSNBC, Access Hollywood, E!, Entertainment Tonight, MTV, and ABC's 2019 Live from the Red Carpet Oscar pre-show. She's a regular on Turner Classic Movies and the host of TCM Imports, showcasing cinematic treasures from around the world each Sunday. Her new show, Follow the Thread, airs on TCM June 4th and HBO Max June 17th, and will explore the synergies between fashion and film and cover a variety of topics at the intersection of the two, inspired by the Metropolitan Museum of Art Costume Institute's new exhibition in America, an anthology of fashion. Previously, Malone was the host of Filmstruck, TCM streaming service for movie lovers, and was the host and creator of Fandango's series, Indie Movie Guide. Her dedication to film, history, and supporting women filmmakers saw her named one of LA Weekly's People of 2019, and one of 100 Worthy Women of 2016. She can also be seen on the Criterion channel as the host of Focus Features' Real Destination series. And Alicia joins us from her home in Maine. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you guys. So your book is Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. The book is part history, part autobiography. And you say in your introduction that you are naturally shy and introverted, but you open up about yourself quite a bit in the book. Do you generally find that discussing your life in this way in the context of film uh, allows you to open up more or in ways that you've not been able to previously? And was that kind of the intention with the book? Yeah, this time around, I wanted to challenge myself by being more personal than my previous two books. And I keep getting asked the same questions as, you know, how did I get into classic films? Why do I love classic films? And how did I get my job as a host on Turner Classic Movies? So I thought this could be a good opportunity to answer a lot of those questions, as well as dig deep about why I do love classic films, because I couldn't even really answer that question properly. And I was starting to think about the the films that I gravitated towards as we went into lockdown, the films that I've watched throughout my life to comfort myself or to give me inspiration. So that's really what I wanted to write about. But I knew being someone who is naturally shy, introverted and quite a private person, I had to think about no one ever reading the book (laughs) when I was writing. I was like, I'm only writing this for me and no one's ever going to see it so that I could properly be more personal because I knew the more personal I could be, the more relatable it would be to other people. So by the end of the book, then I was just happy with what I wrote. And now I feel fine about unleashing it to the world. But while I was writing, I definitely had to keep that 
voice in check that wanted to keep things private. I, I thought I have to be quite open this time around if I'm going to do it properly. Well, something you mentioned early on in the book, uh, when you're talking about your early childhood, is the way that you discovered that kids are almost indoctrinated into that film world where, as you say, uh, boys are central and girls peripheral. We talked off, um, uh, off, off air a bit about the movie National Velvet and how that movie kind of flipped that on its head. But you talk about discovering that it was really kind of a group of old men pulling the strings in Hollywood. Could you fill us in a little bit more about these two realizations and how they impacted your life? Yeah, I had these realizations quite late in life, although as I was a kid, even though I couldn't articulate it, I felt as if it were, was the boys that got to have all the fun, particularly growing up in the 80s. And you think about films like E.T. And even though you have Drew Barrymore being cute little Gertie, it's really the boys that go on this grand adventure and get to fly with their bikes in the sky. And uh, same with movies like Stand By Me and The NeverEnding Story, which was the first film I ever saw. And so I, I wanted to watch films with girls, girls on film. And I first discovered that that was possible with National Velvet, where Elizabeth Taylor as Velvet Brown gets to have the grand adventure, gets to ride a horse and poses as a boy in order to enter the Grand National with this horse. But that led me and mainly my parents to seek out other classic films involving young girls. And I found so many examples of that during the golden age of Hollywood. And then later on, as I started to realize that Hollywood was very much a boys club, particularly at that time when Hollywood was controlled by all men and it was all male executives, it was all male directors, apart from very few exceptions. I later sort of had that, that realization that other classic film historians have talked about that kind of during the golden age of Hollywood, even though it was men pulling the strings, you had these great roles for women and perhaps even more interesting roles than we might even have today when it's a little bit more equal. But having those realizations a lot later, I also felt angry at myself that I hadn't tried to seek out the work of other female film directors or criticism written by women because there was a lot in existence. It just perhaps wasn't as obvious as as the male directed and male written stuff was. But you mentioned a lot in the beginning, especially well, actually throughout the book about art or film imitating life and life imitating film. Do you think that Hollywood had a role in in perpetuating and almost empowering men and boys to be, you know, more uh, more powerful people? I mean, almost a self or uh, yeah. Self, yeah, yeah, I think you know what I'm at, trying to ask. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's um, I think, you know, a lot of times the film reflects society and the ways in which society works. So, of course, during the time, particularly in the 40s and 50s, when Hollywood was flourishing, it, it was just not normal for women to be in powerful positions in business anyway. But I have thought about the idea a lot of the ways in which it has perpetuated this idea of uh maybe films belonging more to men than to women because we've seen so many films directed by men we've seen a lot of men talking about film and and i've i've loved many of those men they've been so instructional in my own life and i have so many favorite male directors but perhaps it gives some kind of sense of ownership to boys watching films particularly when they see a lot of boys having these adventures and being the stars and being the heroes maybe they feel like not only they can be the heroes but perhaps that they are able to talk about film 
more than a lot of women. I mean, I see a lot on social media, for example, you know, young women or people of color wanting to talk about films and getting shouted down. You know, if someone says, I, a girl says, I don't like Marvel movies and like, watch out, you'll get a lot of hate for that. And there seems to be that some sense of ownership, like, no, no, you don't know what we're talking about. This belongs to me and I am right. And, and I wonder if that is perpetuated by the fact that we have seen so much of uh, films being created by men. I'm not entirely sure, but I feel like that's the case. One of my favorite parts of your book was your story about your dad who would wake you up even in the middle of the night to watch yeah. something and it would, you know, kind of led you into the world of film uh, as the father of three daughters, ages, uh, you know, three, 11 and 14. I was really, in re, I guess, re-inspired to watch some of these old films like National Velvet, The Secret Garden, some others that you list. And it was really helpful to uh, kind of start thinking about some of those classic films that I want to start sharing with my girls. Uh, could you give us a couple other examples of, of a few that you've discovered have a real strong um, message for young ladies? Yeah, I think luckily these days, even modern day films are getting better at this, particularly after Gina Davis and her initiative when it comes to family entertainment to make sure that there's more equality between male characters and female characters. But as, uh, as far as, uh, you know, classic films, yeah, I have such a fond memories of my dad, not only showing me films by Hitchcock and explaining who Hitchcock was <laughs> and really starting to opening up that door of uh, intrigue into the world of film, but also showing me these films. The Secret Garden is one you mentioned. I love like the old Nancy Drew mysteries. I love um, Anne of Green Gables. Um, and then as I got older, I also love My Brilliant Career by Gillian Armstrong, who was a female director from Australia. And any kind of, any movie that shows, especially young girls as I was growing up, being scrappy, being the center of the story, being the ones that make it happen. And my brilliant career as I got older was just an example of a woman from a particular age who didn't want to follow a traditional path of womanhood and that I found really inspiring. So I think being able to show young girls, a variety of young girls on screen is, is exciting, but that feeling they get. I remember even just the recent Wonder Woman movie and seeing young girls dressing up as Wonder Woman, like that made me really excited and happy. It is true as Gina Davis's motto is, if she can see it, she can be it. I think yeah. that it, we really see the power that representation has on screen. That actually leads into uh, another question we have around representation. Representation has always mattered, but we're in a time now when it's getting more and more of the attention that it, it really deserves. And more women are being hired as directors of high-profile films and being recognized for those achievements. Chloe Zhao, Jane Campion, women like Jennifer Lee are being hired into executive roles um, in some of the studios. So hopefully girls growing up now won't have, the, have to have the kinds of revelations that you had that we just talked about a little bit ago um, about who is really pulling the strings. Uh, but all that said, we, I, I feel like we still have a long way to go what do you think the industry needs to do to keep making the kind of progress it needs in this area, specifically for women? Yeah, I feel like there's been so much conversation, which has been a wonderful start and something that I've seen change just within my short career. I remember when I released my first book, Backwards and in Heels, and it was hard to get anyone interested in talking about the book. And then a few months later came the Me Too movement, and that started this whole uh, journey of having conversations about gender equality and why it's important on so many different levels. So I've seen it shift so much just within the last few years. 
And so I, I know that there's more times and, and more, more places it can shift and, and it can shift quite quickly. I think right now, you know, I've had, I've been on so many panels where we've talked about women in film and it kind of, after a while, you're like, all right, but we need to actually, this needs to be, this needs to change. And one way in which I still think that women are held back is when it comes to directing bigger budget movies, because I mean, it was great to see that some women are able to direct now the, the superhero movies, but for so long, it, you've really seen the pipeline of female directors stop when it gets to a certain budget that female directors can get to get some money and make an indie film at Sundance and win awards. But when it comes to having to ask for more financing for to make a bigger movie or to get hired by studios for a bigger movie, there seems to still be an idea that there is a risk to give money to female directors that there's not such a risk to give money to male directors, even as they come from the indie world and have the same relevant experience. So I think we still have a far way to go with that. And also just the idea that's interesting to think about with the, the strong female character. And I know I've interviewed many women in the past and I've said, wow, your character is such a strong female character. And now I've had to relook at that. And some people like Britt Marling wrote a great piece about this for the New York Times that you think about strong female character. And often what we mean when we talk about that is that the character is essentially like a man, that she uses guns, that she drives cars. And yes, women can do all that, but I think also women's strength comes from being vulnerable and being complex and being caregivers. And there's so many other facets of womanhood that I think we're yet to explore, particularly in bigger scale movies. And, and I think that's still to come. I'm excited about where that can go. I like the word that you used earlier, feisty. I've got a few of those in yeah. my family. And, uh, and another feisty lady that we, we really uh, enjoy around here is Lucille Ball, my youngest daughter's yeah. name, Lucille. And uh, another, another lady that we, uh, we think about uh, from that era that um, comes to mind when you think about independence uh, is Catherine Hepburn. Mm. And, uh, but her life in and out of Hollywood, it was not without its struggles. Uh, at one point, you talk about her being labeled uh, you know, box office poison, in fact, which is hard to wrap your brain around when you think of, of Catherine Hepburn. But uh, what do you think it was about her specifically, um, you know, finding this male dominated industry that made her stand out? Yeah, she was interesting for so many reasons. You know, growing up, she was always a tomboy. She used to get her friends to call her Jimmy. And it wasn't that she wanted to be a boy, but just that she liked the kinds of things that boys liked. Or traditionally, we were told that boys liked. She always wore pants. And when she came to Hollywood as a new young starlet, that was so odd at the time for a woman to wear pants when they were expected, particularly in Hollywood, to wear beautiful dresses. Uh, she always spoke her mind. She always got what she wanted. But she was really interesting to me in, in the, the, the not only the characters she played on screen, but the, the role she played off screen in orchestrating her own comeback after she was labeled box office poison. And it is hard to fathom. It's also hard to fathom that bringing up baby was a, a huge failure in its time because now we see it as such a classic example of a screwball comedy. But people really hated her character in that movie, the mad cat heiress character that she played. They thought she was too big for her britches, so she was box office poison. And we've seen this a lot with women throughout the years that they're labeled as difficult or if they're unlikable, that that is uh, you know, so a trait that you don't want to be labeled as. As a woman, you want to be very likable and pleasing. And she fought her way back by pitching ideas for films to studios and taking 
the Philadelphia story, the play that was a success to MGM and negotiating her own deal. And then doing the same thing with Woman of the Year. And even though she had to make concessions, like the ending to Woman of the Year, where suddenly her character, who is set up as a brilliant newspaper woman, can't make toast and can't have coffee. And they, they wanted to add that to the end to make sure she wasn't too perfect because you also can't be too perfect as a woman. Um, and she regretted agreeing to that, but she was trailblazing in so many ways. And just, I think, a force to watch. You get that when you see her in the movies, that even if her character is supposed to get married at the end, she has a streak of independence that is empowering even today to watch. Do you see any current uh, female actors have that sort of independence and that I'm going to get what I want um, mm. attitude? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there there are like a few today that I'm inspired by because they always seem like themselves. And one that just comes to mind, one actress is Jennifer Lawrence. Just She's probably very different from Catherine Hepburn in that she's not maybe not as headstrong, but the thing that I love about Jennifer Lawrence is that she can be messy and she can fall over and she can be not perfect. And she's very funny and she sort of blazes her own trail. She disappears for a while and she does the film she wants to do. I also love Kristen Stewart as well. I think she makes really interesting choices and she always goes for roles that are unexpected and really puts herself out there. And she's someone as well who in interviews is completely herself. And people have said she's awkward or she's not great at doing interviews, but I think she's brilliant because she's just being herself. And that's something that I know I've definitely struggled with throughout my life is not having to be perfect and not having to always, uh, you know, put up the, the, the perfect woman kind of front, but being able to be imperfect and messy and just completely yourself. I think that's one of the bravest things you can do as a woman. And I also love Jessica Chastain and she's probably more similar to Catherine Hepburn in that she definitely gets her own way and she blazes a trail. Um, Reese Witherspoon would be the same in terms of her producing. There's a lot of women now like them who are just making sure that they get the roles that they want to play and often by producing the content themselves. Can we put uh, Drew Barrymore on that list, even though we yeah. haven't seen much from Drew <laughs> lately? Love Drew. So as you, you, you talked about conversations that we have to have around these now, these topics, as your role as TCM host, obviously you've got a soapbox, or you've got a platform. Do you have any impact on the curation of the films that are presented on TCM? Perhaps as someone with a focus on women in film, and, and you know, especially with this book and, and your previous books, suggesting films that, that focus on women, including the good and the bad. Yeah, we're so lucky at TCM, not only to have a wonderful programming department who are so knowledgeable when it comes to movies. And it's one of the things I love about TCM is everything is handpicked by people who love film. There's no algorithm involved and no, you know, obviously concern about ratings. It's just all about what is the best film to play right in this moment. And so they're very open to suggestions. And I have made suggestions in the past that they've definitely taken, but overall they're, they're so skilled at this and they, come up with ideas like Women Make Movies, which we did a couple of years ago that focused all on female directed films and ideas like uh, a series on body image. And, you know, it's usually me looking at the programming sheet and going, can I do that? Like that's right <laughs> up my alley. I want to do that theme. And, uh, and Millie DeCherico, who programs TCM Imports, she 
allows me to suggest ideas for that programming section. So we're always trying to think about how to how to reframe movies, you know, how to play them in a different light, how to create themes around them. And I was so lucky with this book that they said, how about we do a night of programming and you tell us, you know, four movies from your book that you'd like us to play. So I got to program that night and speak about my book. Uh, so yeah, they're very open to ideas and suggestions. But on the whole, most of the programming comes from them because they're just brilliant at what they do. At that point, you must have been pinching yourself having read your book uh, oh about gosh. your aspirations uh, when you were young. That had to be pretty surreal for you. Yeah, it's very it's very full circle. And writing the book it made me consider how we don't really change much <laughs> from our childhood, so that we're still the same people as we were as a kid. I'm still talking about films and doing my own little film club, but this time people are actually showing up to the screenings and actually listening to what I have to say. <laughs> and so it made me think about, yeah, sitting at home and watching Bill Collins introduce films. And now that I get to do the same thing, it's, it's crazy. It's like meant to be in a way it's, it worked out perfectly somehow. And we've been fortunate. Uh, you're the latest in a line of great authors that, that have a TCM relationship, Jeremy Arnold, Scott mm -hmm. uh, McGee, Scott Iman, Richard Barrio. So, we love TCM and, and we're so happy to have you and all these other wonderful authors and, and hosts and such an education. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I feel the same. Anytime I talked to, I did the night with Scott McGee about stunts and I learned so much from him just talking about stunts and always love talking to Jeremy and Scott. I I have all his books. So I love the ways in which TCM works with authors to produce these, uh, works that I have like in my home library so I can reference them as I'm writing intros for myself. <laughs> well, and while we're on the subject of TCM, you have a new series premiering on that channel, uh, June 4th called Follow the Thread. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how it came about. Yeah, this was another one that was not created by myself, but when I saw the programming list where we get to see at the beginning of the year, just the ideas for the entire year, the broad strokes, and I saw this follow the thread that's all about fashion and it's something that we've been talking about for a while, fashion and film and the way in which they interplay with each other. And I was like, I want to do that. Like, please, I'd love to host that. So I was so lucky that I ended up getting to, to host the series. And so what it is, it's a conversation about fashion and film. And it's fascinating for me because I learned so much about fashion. I learned so much about costume design and you really consider how, Yes, films have influenced fashion trends and fashion trends have influenced what people wear in film, but the work of a fashion designer and the work of a costume designer are so different. Like costume designer, I was speaking to Deborah Nadorman Landis and she was saying how as a costume designer, you actually don't want the viewers to notice the costumes because you want them just to be part of the character's everyday wardrobe and they are saying something to you about the character and the way they see themselves and how they present themselves to the world, but they shouldn't be so obvious that you notice them. Whereas a fashion designer is all about selling clothes and trying to spark trends and, and trying to um, you know make the clothes the most important thing that you wanna look at. So it was fascinating to get to talk with costume designers, fashion designers and fashion and film historians about how all this works together and to talk about the relationships that stars had with fashion designers. We get into so many different themes. I also got to go to the Met because this is 
uh, sort of inspired by the latest Met exhibition, which is called In America, an Anthology of Fashion, uh, where they got nine different film directors, most of them women, by the way, and most of them people of color, to create like freeze frames in these different period rooms using garments and architecture and try to create these these little cinematic moments. So it's interesting to be inspired by that, get to go to visit the Met and to talk to the people involved in that exhibition. Uh, yeah, it was a dream come true. And I got to wear some fabulous outfits myself. So I was very lucky. <laughs> Great. Sounds like fun. <laughs> so fun. Well, you closed your book talking about the impact uh, the pandemic has had on your life as it's had on everyone's life and how you picked up stakes, moved east, hoping for a kind of reboot um, in a lot of ways. You mentioned a new goal of owning a small classic uh, movie theater, something Matt and I have a little bit of experience with. I'm on the board of a local 80-year-old movie theater that Matt and I have been involved in introducing films there as part of one of the uh, Movies of the Decade series. And we had Jeremy come up, uh, Jeremy Arnold come up in December for a oh, Christmas cool. um, kind of Q&A and, and showing of It's a Wonderful Life there. So first of all, how is that going? How is that uh, goal of, of bringing this classic movie theater going? Yeah, yeah well, you, you both know more than anyone that that is kind of the dream for any film lover to be able to be part of someone else's movie memories as you remember going to the theater it's, it'd be it's such a great idea to to be able to foster that in other people i mean i just i just love that that's definitely a dream but you also know how hard it is <laughs> so trying to start a nonprofit in order to buy and run a movie theater is a lot of work and it's particularly tricky because i have no experience when it comes to businesses like people say what's your business plan it's like um yeah i gotta figure it out <laughs> yeah i can tell you the movies i want to show like that's my strength <laughs> is the programming uh the connections i have hopefully to bring special guests like you were saying with jeremy arnold like bring people to the theater i think that is the way in which we encourage people to go, come back out of their houses and go to see a movie Absolutely. is by making it into an event. So something you can't see at home. Yes, you could watch Casablanca at home, but could you watch Casablanca with an intro by whoever? Um, so I've got all those ideas, but I'm just not very financially minded or business minded. So what I'm looking for right now is a partner who can really help me out with that side of things and um, just get the nonprofit started and apply for the status with the IRS. So this is like a long term goal. I know it's going to take some time, particularly because I'm new in the area. So I'm still trying to get to know people in the community. But everyone seems very excited about the idea. Everybody loves this local theater. No one wants to see it, you know, be sold off to be condos or anything like that. So I think there's a good chance that it will work out, but it just might take some time. But as you know, I'm nothing if not persistent when it comes to my goals. <laughs> so right. I'm willing to just do whatever I need to do. Well, we've talked about Follow the Thread. Uh, now this is your third book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. What's next for you? Well, I, I always say after I write a book, I never want to write another book again. because <laughs> It's so hard and it just takes everything out of you. And then I start thinking of another idea. But as of right now, I'm just really enjoying my day-to-day -day life here in Maine, in my new place and, and having much more of a work-life balance than I've had in the past, getting to watch all the films, write all the scripts, and then go to Atlanta to film for a few days at once every two months, you know, such a great schedule to have. And then having just done Follow the Thread where I got to travel to New York and LA and, 
and uh, it was all very exciting. I'm looking forward to just just taking it easy for a little while. So there's nothing major in the pipeline apart from follow the thread in my book. Um, I'm going to do some gardening. I've never done gardening before, but I'm going to give it a try. Word on the street is that can be a little relaxing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going <laughs> to give it a go, see what happens. Well, Alicia, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Again, your book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies, uh, is available everywhere. Fine books are sold, and your uh, show, Follow the Thread, airs on TCM June 4th and on HBO Max June 17th. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. This was a real pleasure. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you again to our guest, Alicia Malone. Her new book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies, is available now everywhere fine books are sold. And her new show, Follow the Thread, will air on TCM June 4th and HBO Max June 17th. Follow her on Instagram at, at Alicia Malone. I'll link to the show notes. And if you enjoyed episode 63, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. You can find all the latest on HeilmanandHaver.com, along with all our past episodes and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater in the Mix and behind-the-scenes artist interviews, and of course, Greg's reviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 